Today, I am joined as always by Father Timothy Danaher and our first ever guest, New York comedian Patrick Keene. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, thank you for having me. Get some round of applause there. there. Get some claps. Get that good. Now, do you? I have a question for Patrick first. Keen is a type of outdoor shoe, correct? I'm not trying to insult you. Just that's what comes <laughs> I, to that's, mind. That sounds right. I think that might be spelled K-E-A-N, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm actually I have no idea. It's um a town in several states: New Hampshire, New York. I've been to Keene, New Hampshire before. I actually think I could be wrong. You know, who's the documentary guy from PBS? Um, oh, yeah. the Bur- Ken Burns. No, Keene is way oh. north in New Hampshire. He lives southwest. Yeah. I think we're off to a hot, hot start. <laughs> <laughs> who's the other PBS documentarian? Are there others? Can we name others? I would have no clue. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. that's as far as I get. Yeah, but we're not here to talk about Ken Burns today. We are here to talk about Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. And let me give a nice short intro to what this film is about. Swedish film, 1957. Quick description. Returning exhausted from the Crusades to find medieval Sweden gripped by the plague, a knight, played by Max von Sydow, suddenly comes face to face with a hooded figure of death and challenges him to a game of chess. Basically, they play chess throughout the throughout the film, and the knight and the squire encounter a bunch of outcasts in a society in despair. And this is an, a profound inquiry into the nature of faith and the torment of mortality. And this is on a lot of best-ever film list, which is why we took this one up to see whether it holds muster. And we'll rank it, right? We're getting our own list, because those other lists... What is it? Yeah. Sundance, Time Magazine. What are the lists we're going off of? Somewhat. Do you do the sight and sound poll? That's sight it. and sound is definitely. That's, that's we do, but one. we don't. That's the thing. We do, but we're making our own. That's oh, the journey. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. each film belongs either in the kitchen or the living room. I'm not. No, I no, can't no. remember. You have to think of it in terms of cuisine. Is this is this a dining room oh. table film? Is this a kitchen table film? Or does this belong in the trash? You know. Oh, okay, those are the three categories. Right. <laughs> so okay, far, great. they could change. Yeah. Does anybody have, like, first big thoughts about this? I mean, should we start with what stands out? Sure. I mean, I think the big question that I have, or that I think the film is presenting right from the beginning, is what is your response to impending death? So a knight returns to the Crusades, and he immediately meets death. He's trying to figure out how he can live, so he challenges death to a game of chess. And death is—he doesn't feel ready. Death is creepy, isn't that the first thing he appears on the beach? You know, this like cloaked yeah. figure with like a—he's like bald and wide-eyed and he's like painted white. Right. He's kind of goofy looking a little bit, for sure. Yeah, this a little is foreboding, the... but he, he's also like uh, pretty funny throughout death. He's like a little cheeky at times like hiding and then like there's that part where he cuts down that tree that the guy is in and he just like it looks like a um looks like a warner brothers cartoon almost <laughs> yeah it does there's also yeah, a little bit of playfulness kind of with playing a game of chess that's also kind of cheeky as well 
Definitely. I, I personally am always a little intimidated by chess. Some people find it entertaining, but I think that's kind of the point as well. I'm not just saying, hey, here are my feelings about chess, but there is something about like getting into that game, which has all these complex moves. There's there's a nervousness, I think, before anybody stepping up to a chessboard. And I think that's true about if you're playing against death for your life. I, I like that selection um, of this chess match, even just with the initial mm -hmm. emotions. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Do you think that the main character thinks that he has any chance of beating death, though? Or do you think it's just to prolong his life? A part of me thinks that he, 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 he does have a shot against death. I mean, he, he, he essentially seems, at least I'd say he seems confident at the start. He's like, let's go. Um, until the very end, until he loses. And I think that actually kind of, this is my interpretation, it mirrors and mimics our own confidence in life that we wake up every day confident that life will keep going on and we can avoid this. Whereas in fact, he's kind of surprised in the end how he gets into a checkmate. It kind of comes suddenly. So I think that's true about death as well. It's always more sudden than we anticipate. Yeah, there's the false confession scene where he's like actually confessing to death, but death is hidden behind a grate. And he's like, oh, I'm about to break his flank in the next move with a combination of knight and rook. And then death's like, I'll remember that. He's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there's like, some I level, gotcha. like you're saying, of best laid plans. Yeah. He calls him a traitor. He says, you're a traitor. A thing that I really like about this movie is that death is like a real thing and like a f uh, thing that everyone sort of agrees upon exists in sort of a fantastical way. But the knight is like struggling with knowing if there's like a god or not or like what's on the other side of death. So it's like death is this mm -hmm. like real fantastical element in the film, but that doesn't like mean that there's anything else. And it's like, yeah, death is like so assured in our society and in our world our life as human beings and he says it's too like in that argue with that in that confessional scene which is really the second scene after the beach where they begin the chess mass it, it's, it's interesting too how he he does wonder about god but side by side with that he's also just wondering he wants one significant experience he sort of before he wants to die he wants to feel in vague terms some sort of like that life is meaningful, that it matters. And I think one thing that's underemphasized is that this isn't just, in theory, some man facing death. What it is, is it's a knight who's for 10 years been away from his family. He's been on crusade. He's been really disillusioned by, like, these holy wars, so to speak. He is kind of someone who, as, as he is philosophical, he is also sort of emotionally numb. I mean, philosophical people like Bill DePiro can be emotionally numb just day to day. That's why mm -hmm. he needs to get that plate of eggs. He needs to really feast. He needs to really get that pick-me-up. I mean, this is true. You're very, you, you, would, you would admit you're, you're a Ravenclaw. You're... I would say so. I'd say I'm more Ravenclaw in that I... But I think that, that eggs do give me the bodily pleasure that I need to break out of my head. Right. A plate of bacon. As well as dancing, as well as humor. You have a list. I mean, we all do. Yeah. But, but I do think he's not just this philosophical character standing in front of that. He's, he's also disillusioned by warfare and plague. And just, I think he's had a heavy 10 years and we're catching him at this point in his life. That's a Tracy Chapman song. You guys know that? This point no. in my life, I've done so many things wrong. You don't know that. Well, I mean, I know you got a fast car. 
Hold everything in to get us out of here. I remember That's the one we, I know. Yeah. Driving in your car, speed so loud, I feel like I was drunk. Yeah. So how does how does that song relate to the night in his dilemma? I think he's at a very particular. T- I, I, I'm just saying we can't treat this as a character in a vacuum. Is that he's yeah. coming home from crusade and in the midst of plague, and it's also a story about the times. It's sort of this medieval times thing. And yeah. I think you like. I think they're trying to present a lot of different people and how they, and I think you're right. It's like, it's not just about how they view death, but more so like how they view life. And you see that in like the squire, right? The squire also just did the same 10 years as the knight in the crusades, but he has like pretty crazily different outlook on what life is and how to like pursue life. Right. He's kind of just out for himself and he's like, you know, it doesn't fucking matter like what's on the other side of this or what even is going on all you have to do is just like live your life whereas the knight is just like constantly questioning like what does it mean what should i be doing and who's out there for me yeah i do i do think like all good characters though this is an agreement it's just adding to what you said patrick is good characters always have complexity um there are other films or literature we could talk about where characters may be too much just one thing just a pure foil like take for instance the knight and the squire in comparison. It's true the knight's philosophical about death, but he's also, when he settles down with Mary and Joseph, those are the English names, um, when he settles down with that young family and they have that kind of like strawberry fields forever picnic feast, you know, he, he mm-hmm. does kind of, he mm-hmm. gets really moved. And, and so he's complex. Is he, he, he is still convinced in moments of the beauty of life. And that's a moment of significance he had somewhat been looking for. But he's also playing this chess match. I would say the same thing with the squire, is that as much as he is like, who cares, I'm out for myself, he also you know, defends that girl from uh, you know, being violated, that young girl who never speaks. I don't know if, even if she has a name. He's also kind of responsible the whole time and keeping things going. So even, I, I just mean to say that I, I, I think characters like real people have to have that complexity. They're never just one attitude, you know. And I think that's true of the others as well. You look at the other characters brought in. I mean, the only people that escape death in the end is this couple, this man and wife, what Mary, Joseph, their, their child, Michael. Again, we, we you could say in some ways they're also just this simple, like the hopefulness of life, the wistfulness of life. Well, that's true, but, I mean, they also have differences. He thinks he sees, like, the Virgin Mary at the beginning of the film. He, he looks out at the end of the film and has... Um, this view of like, you know, the, the sun stre- streaming through with the rain and saying, you know, he quotes Isaiah, the Lord will wash away all tears, it'll be fine. His, his wife, frankly, kind of doubts him. She's like, you're having these visions, you know. She just wants to sleep in. She's trying to take care of their baby. It's just, I like when characters are, com- are they, they stand for certain viewpoints, but they're still complex enough to be real characters. Um, otherwise, I start to... I think I think otherwise it's just not true enough to life. That's one aspect. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, the knight and the squire overlap in a few small ways, which is interesting. In the confession scene, the knight, after he feels like he's been tricked and he says all these things about how he wants a guarantee from from God and not just these vague promises, 
he has this moment of like, I'm Antonius Block. I am alive. I can feel the blood flowing through my veins. I'm like, and he has this expression of gratitude for life. And then that is at the very end where he says, enjoy the last few moments of your life rather than asking what it means here. Both the squire and the knight at separate points in the film express the feeling of gratitude for life and the experience of good things. And that is one of those places where they overlap and find joy despite all the impending doom surrounding them. Yeah, it definitely feels like that's sort of the squire's thing that he's already in that place and that the knight is like struggling to like come to that place and also to think like what's beyond and what's bigger than all of this. But yeah, that strawberry scene on the field, I think, is definitely one of the most sort of, you know, touching moments for me watching the movie and sort of the most relevant to like the philosophical questions of the film in that he's like sort of, you know, this thing of like the present moment and like this is a memory I can take with me and all of this is the goodness of the world. And it's funny that that's like him sort of agreeing with the squire, uh, even though the squire maybe we see as a little more sort of like rough and tumble kind of version of this idea. Now, did any of you think during the scene where they're passing around a bowl of strawberries and sharing the same bowl of milk, did you, in the midst of coronavirus, get a little reaction? Did you worry? I did. I worried more when he got up in the face of the woman who was like the witch and they were like, the plague came from her and he got up in her face. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> you need to take six feet and just yell at her. <laughs> it was, it's, it's very crazy. To, it made me think like, what did, I don't really know much about the plague in terms of like what it was like on the ground. And it's like, what did people think? How was it? How did people think it was spreading? And what did they think was the cause? And like, I mean, they guess they thought it was like evil spirits and demons and stuff. So it's like, yeah, yeah how are they so comfortable just like all hanging out? I have a theory here, and I'll put this forward for this. And I think that this is a statement because like basically this film is being made in the 1950s. And this happened, what, 400 years, 500 years before. So I think that this is a statement about fear. Right. And that you are seeing this somewhat now as well, where suffering demands some sort of proportionate intention or intent. So people will ascribe meaning to bad things that that give it some degree of moral weight. So if there is a plague that's killing a lot of people, as you see with those people who go through the streets whipping themselves, it is a punishment for God that needs to be treated with a proportionate response that allows us to expiate our guilt or whatever we did that was wrong. Or in the face of these people pointing to this girl, who knows what she's accused of, really. Just the same way that women are deemed to be witches if they're uh, slightly strange or independent in some way in the wrong context. They, they have ascribed the that caused the plague to her, but it doesn't seem like she has the plague. It just seems like they've whipped her and uh, tortured her to the point where she's losing it. Totally. And yeah, so the main theme being, and this is something that the knight says while in confession, we make fear an idol and that fear becomes, uh, our fear projects outward to create 
greater meanings to our suffering because we can't just suffer for no reason. And that's, for whatever reason, unacceptable to us. It seems to me, too, at least what Bergman is showing as parallels is that a minority of people in a, in a time of fear are going to be philosophical about it, like the knight. Even the squires, they're kind of opposite philosophies, but they're both kind of, you know, one is more in the heavens, one is more on earth, but they both, have their, they both are reflecting in these times. I think, though, the, the majority reaction to fear, which is shown as blame, is that there's, there's just a lot of blame. Are we blaming ourselves and our behavior before God? Are we blaming this woman who's a witch, etc.? cetera? Um, and I think, that's, I think that's true. I don't want to dive or, or, or divert our things into... I mean, we are discussing a movie on plague in the midst of plague. It's not as serious, um, even though it's very serious still. It, it, it is true, though, that, that it's a human reaction to, to, to blame. And, and part of blame is, like, tied up with trying to find a solution. I mean, they're doing that in religious ways. We're doing that in more scientific ways these days. But I think, I think it resonates. I mean, none of us last year ever anticipated our present times. And it is interesting to think of, like, this is a year of, even for me personally, a year of more fear. I mean, even if that's mild, I still, in the back of my mind, have a few more fears about just health and family. And, and, I, and, and I do think that's true about this film, as true about now, is that fear doesn't just stay fear. Some people reflect on but it does lead to a thing like blame. Yeah, I think it's like that kind of a human behavior of like, I don't want to think that these things are just happening at random. It might happen to me at random. I want to have some control over it. And I think this thing of fear too, in our present time, in this time of the, uh, that the film takes place, uh, and throughout history, it's like this fear is very much like end of days fear. It's kind of like a more than just like, Oh, I'm scared of something coming, someone coming. It's like, Oh, this fear is like, it's a fear of end of days versus just a general sort of fear, like even fear of the other, which certainly plays a part in this sort of like witch, witchcraft and assigning blame. But it's the way that fear of end of life and death for the individual is sort of brought out into the whole of society where it's like this is the end. So I think that kind of is a different fear in that it really makes a person in a society look at that kind of those bigger questions i want to call out because we're talking about the scene of this this woman who's blamed as a witch being blamed accused you know as one thing There's i want to two call scenes of it also well the, when, when they first meet and then later before she's burned right yeah so the later scene i want to call out our host billy DePiro. Uh -oh. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be fine so i remember you you were saying that you, he was applying for a scholarship. He went to Notre Dame, but he went, was applying for a scholarship at a small local university in our hometown, Franciscan University of Steubenville, where I went. And they, part of the interview was, if there's one person in history you could have lunch with, who would it be? And he gave this very provocative and very interesting answer. I think I would have lunch with Pontius Pilate, you know, the Roman governor, who, just to know what he was going through. And I think that's an interesting answer, but when he's interviewing this girl, the interesting request 
is that Block himself goes to her and basically says, if you know the devil, can you summon the devil? Because maybe he has reasons. Like, I haven't gotten reasons from God for why this is happening. Maybe I'll turn to the other side and ask the devil. And he doesn't, he doesn't get reasons beyond regular human experience, okay? He doesn't ever. But there is this really interesting search about, I'm going to search kind of the this theme of tree of good and evil it's like i'm trying to figure out to go into life like who knows do the good people in this world or the or the good angels know what's going on do the do the bad people and it's it's just he's searching every possible direction for causes i think that's actually very much a good definition of philosophy is just to search the whole field for causes and yet i'm a little critical of philosophy in that it has limits where you can reach some insights, but it doesn't, in the end, give a satisfactory answer. Neither does the movie exactly. When death finally knocks on the door for each of them, they finally reach the pilgrimage blocks family home. He's finally home. They have one dinner, and death knocks on the door. And it's true. Is I, I, I love that instinct where just people, when they have to face the moment itself, they face it differently. But the, the film doesn't have, so to speak, a big answer that drops down. And I think that's honest storytelling, honest cinema, because it still stays on the human level. Yeah, that scene where he asked the possessed woman did remind me of applying to that scholarship. Did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> but, there's, uh, but there's this whole sort of like... I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, though. And I mean, th- with, that, with that scene, he's, he's like, oh, you know the devil, right? The devil would know God, so can the devil tell me about God? This sort of, oh, you you guys are mutual friends. But there's also something interesting there because he's asking her if she knows the devil. And, she's, and she says, they said that they see the devil in me. And she's not necessarily convinced that she's seen the devil. She's just been accused of this to the point where they're going to kill her for it, so it makes sense to her now. And Block stares into her eyes, and he says he just sees fear. And they justify him and the squire, saying she's almost dead anyhow. I was thinking about killing all these guys, but what good does that do at this point? And they give her a painkiller just so that she can get through the end of it. And actually... At the very end, that's what the squire says to Block when Block is in despair once death shows up at the door of his wife's house. He says, uh, I could have given you something a little bit ago, but it's too late. You know, basically saying, I could have given you some painkillers or whatever thing to cope. There's some degree of coping admits pain and fear. Yeah, I think that to me is like that scene is about that it's like almost he's coming to the devil and he's like i'm not even i'm just looking for proof like i'm looking for proof it feels so crazy and scary to be like i have to put my faith into this thing i've never once seen it ever and that is terrifying to me to try to still believe that this is a thing and yeah i love that that she's like just look in my eyes like they all saw it and and but it's not there and i love mm-hmm. when she is I love when she's being burned. No, but I love that moment when she is being burned and the squires like look at her. He's like, look at what she's seeing right now. She's seeing nothing. She's at that moment, she is realizing there is nothing on the other side and there is no one there to help to to hold her or protect her. It is mm-hmm. when you're done, you're done. And I think 
that is like the squire's sort of viewpoint and it's like crushing to the knight who's just like all i want i don't even want like any all i want is for you to just show me that there is something i just need to see something and it's like you're not gonna see that it's not coming something to add to this is kind of from my own experience rather than the film so Something I don't advertise widely, but it's true. I'm actually chaplain at University of Pennsylvania Hospice. So I'm actually kind of like sitting with dying people three to four days a week. You know, it's not full time. I go in for about an hour or two. And I think something interesting, which is reflected in this film, is some people kind of remain as they are. Like as they have lived, they just kind of go right into death that way. And other people do have these moments of like, wait let's like go through some changes and, and pause. It's, it's, really, it's really diverse, the way that people face um, that moment. And I would say this girl who's kind of been put in this position, she's crying out. Take some other examples, like um, the other, so there's, there's a husband and wife, Mary and Joseph. Who is the third, the, the main leader of their acting troupe? Skag um, or something? Something like that. <laughs> like Skag. And he acts like a Skag, too. No, he... <laughs> He runs off, you know, with that married woman, and they, and that, that's also true in times of plague. Some people are afraid, and some people are like, "Let's just uh, eat and drink for tomorrow we die." Um, and he, he kind of dies later, right? Death chases him down. He's on the tree. He's like being sawed. Mm-hmm. But it's true as as he was kind of running around the woods with this woman. He's also kind of running around the woods away from death. There's just kind of there's this wandering on his part. Even the night in the end, when death finally knocks on the door, all he does, he, he kind of does a prayer, like, Lord, have mercy, this and that. But again, there's not this clarity of, oh, he looks into the eyes of death and says there's nothing, nor does he look into the eyes of God and says, yes, I see him. He's just sort of left, as he lived in life searching, he kind of ends searching, I think. I think that's true about people who die, that many people do just kind of live their life in a certain way, all the way through the finish line. Whereas there are others, take that mute girl, you know, who the squire saves, and she doesn't say a word the whole time. She, in the end, I guess she's quoting scripture, she kind of kneels down and says, it is finished. It's the only time she speaks. I just, I, I'm just trying to say, I think that's accurate, that some people, their mindset that they, that they carry through life is, is, it just carries through. And other people, too, before the moment of death, I've seen this in real life, kind of have this whole reassessment, or they say something. You can have big beauty at the time of death. You can also have big family fights. And you can also have people that were, like, watching, like, CNN or Fox News every day or just doing that on their deathbed. Like, I've had everything from, like, a person, like, very existential conversations of people wondering what's next and wanting to make some sort of prayer and talking about their fears. And I've also had people who were just like ordering pizzas to their room the day they died. No lie, yeah, that's happened. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting that I just mean to say that some people change before death and some people don't. And I, I think that's reflected in the movie, but, but I mean to say this too. It's not just like, oh, there's a diversity of responses. Death is a great equalizer. Like, however you deal with it, it's going to happen. And that's what we sort of hate about it. Like, we don't want that to, we don't know, we're not sure. But in the end, when you see them all dancing on the hillside, the sort of, if I could use some French, <clears throat> the danse macabre. Did I say that right? I believe so. 
the macabre dance. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. there is this equality of there they go off on the hillside, hand in hand with death, and it is a movie about how we face it. It's also a movie about just the fact that, well, in the end, it's going to equally happen across the board, and I don't, I wouldn't say this is a movie I'd say, oh, it was so enjoyable, it was so fun, it was so moving. There's certainly interesting things, and I'm glad I watched it. I remember me and Bill had watched this as high school students some summer, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know how I felt about it then. I was like, huh, that was complex, kind of dark. And now I, I don't think it's so dark, but it's just weird. Is like when art is based on looking at death, there are good points to be made, but we, I still never walk away and thinking just like, I really liked that. I never really like the theme of death because I think that's the point of the movie too. We, we never settle. We never rest. We never, until it actually happens, it's sort of all these various thoughts. I think the point of the painter or the point of the film goes back to the scene between the squire and the painter where there is the squire goes into this church well and he's he's being so what did you paint up here and it's the dance macabre scene dance of death and apparently Bergman's father I think was a Lutheran or a Calvinist minister and this was in one of the churches that he would go to and he's what is this you're trying to make people afraid it's like well people need to consider their lives they need to consider that they will die and he says i paint things as they are and the point of it he says is to scare them into thinking and the squire is saying are you going to scare them into the arms of a priest he's no the the goal is to scare them to think so I think in some way the role of this painter also reflects what Bergman's intent is with the film, which is to get people to consider their own mortality and the role of something that maybe everyone wants to avoid. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely it. And I think uh, that scene is really important to the movie itself. Um, and I think, yeah, the it feels to me that, and this is maybe most movies about death, but they really are really about life, right? And it's like the squire, I think, at one point says is like uh, how magical like life is and like raging into life. And like the whole point is not to like dwell on this death, but it's to like have these moments like having the strawberries and the milk on the field and like thinking about these and not to dwell on this death. I think also talking about like the diversity of like points of view toward death it's like that last scene is so beautiful. There's like a tableau. There's a lot of tableaus in the film of like sort of these like medieval still images almost. But we mm-hmm. see like six people and we see how they all sort of react to death, right? And we have the like blacksmith and his wife and how they're sort of like friendly and like welcoming death. And the knight is like very scared. He's like in the background, like sort of like freaking uh the blacksmith too it's that funny thing he's like we're not much worse than other people (laughs) like you know we're just your average people here death he's like come on lisa curtsy to the curtsy (laughs) to the the nice man (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i think that is like a really beautiful moment that shows that that point exactly what you're saying is like yeah there is all these different sort of reactions to it and yeah i think that like the mute woman her reaction this sort of like 
almost like odd. She just, her eyes get so big and she just gets onto her knees. Um, that's a really sort of like touching moment for me, I think. That sort of awe that comes with death sometimes. But yeah, I think it's definitely a movie that, yeah, tries to make you think what is important in your life and what's the good to come in life and not actually so much about death. And I think it's tied to what that painter was trying to do. This is something, too, I hadn't thought about until you were just speaking, Patrick, but I actually, in a human emotional level, I, I'm, I'm both times I've seen the film, I'm sort of upset that death happens to knock on the door right when he finally gets home. And I think that's also true, is like the timing of death. Death usually seems to be at like the unfortunate time. It's like, why now? And that's a major question. I think... I'm glad he did that in the plot, too, because it evokes at least some of that emotion of couldn't this be put off a little bit? You know, he just got home. It's like, yeah, that's a good emotion to have a movie make you feel because there's an it's an it's an echo of a lot of real experiences of like the timing of death in real life. There's so much here. I feel like still to talk about because there's why did death let him live this time? And there's some suggestion that it's because he had a few things to do before he died. One was to see his wife again. Part of it was to let Joseph and Mary and their child escape. Because Joseph sees him playing chess with death, his visions tip him off to this. Then I'm thinking about that scene around the same time where that guy who was bullying Joseph comes back with a plague and is just wailing and the squire is telling him to stay beyond behind the tree and the mute woman wants to help him and the squire says no there's no point and he was he he was not a bully he was the guy trying to attack the mute woman in the beginning when they were alone oh right right and then he comes back as a bully but then he's a bully yeah he bullies him okay you're right but that's he does have a relationship with that woman but he has a whole history of basically scheming and he used to be it was also mentioned he was in the plague or in in the crusades before as a priest but then he left to just like make money and he convinced them to go fight in the plague right right yeah yeah um yeah i think that is an interesting thing of like this we kind of think it's nice to offer that peace and that kindness to people who are dying but he kind of has that hard line of like it's there's no use and i don't think it's tied to who that man is like i think anyone that had the plague like that he probably would have said the same thing about and i don't know yeah that is such an interesting uh cold moment but feels right cuz then they would all just be dead although they all end up dead in the end anyway <laughs> like all of us <laughs> yeah there's an interesting that that scene watching it now reminded me unfortunately of our current circumstance because that is kind of the story of people dying in ICU unable to see their families just because of the rules of I'm sort of not even sure why it has to be that way but that is what goes on in one of the you know as he's staying there will no one console me and it's now we have nurses and doctors and physicians assistants who are taking on this almost spiritual role for people uh i mean i don't know tim if you've had any experience with people with this yeah so i've i've been unable to as a priest see covid patients i've been able to see all other patients but again it's it's that doctors and nurses are very much on the front lines of this plague more than anyone in society 
they're kind of called to be everything in these moments yeah what yeah. do you and i mean it comes from not trying not to spread it right which is yeah. like kind of yeah that sort of thing of like it's not gonna be helpful in the end just sad but yeah it's like well what do you want you give someone some comfort and now this whole group is gonna have the plague what do you, you guys don't. what do you guys make of to the family in the end the three of them surviving they're the only real survivors of the main characters i mean that that is a note of hopefulness it's the very last scene that they write off together that life goes on even despite you know i mean for a time right but what do you make of that because that is the last scene i'm not saying it's it, it's mm-hmm. all okay it erases every consideration but it's it's kind of it's a little bit of a balancing of perspective Definitely. I think it's like this kind of thing of like, oh, end times. And it's like, well, it's not going to, it's never really the end. And there's always going to be something until, I guess, until it really is the end. But um, yeah, I think it is hope. You're right. But it's also not like meant to be, oh my gosh, things are going to be great. It is just sort of like people are surviving and they'll go on and it's about life. So it's like, they're going to have more moments in the sun and that's what's really important about all this. I think in some way it's meant to be a juxtaposition from the hordes of people self-flagellating, singing D.A.C.R.A., which is the day of wrath and doom. Our personal end can feel like the end of everything. Because I think that there is some degree of solipsism that exists within each of us. If it feels like I could die, then it means everything's going to be over. But children are still being born despite the death. There almost seems to be some sort of moral weight placed on it, but there's also something about Joseph where he is uh, seen as kind of a simpleton in some <laughs> level. He's very, very simple, believing, wide-eyed, almost a goofy performance from this guy. He's bullied for being an actor, and you can sort of see why, and there's a lot of actor jokes that are thrown in in the middle section. We haven't talked about that whole scenario as much but yeah i think it is meant to stand against the dacra yeah i think um if it were like a such a perfect like heteronormative like nuclear family it might be more (laughs) annoying but they are kind of such a weirdo little family that it's like it's not it's not so it doesn't feel like it stands for something of like the nuclear family will survive and that's what's important it's more just like these are people who have survived um, yeah, I think his character is so, I mean, both their characters are really interesting and funny, but his is so funny in the way he's such a simpleton, but he really does see death. I mean, within the reality of the movie, mm-hmm. his visions are true. Um, at least that one is. So it's interesting how that is all that plays out. What do you all two think of like Bergman? So we're, we're, we're focusing on this story and in all of these different ways. Do you think, I mean, I don't know, you probably both know more about Bergman and his full array of movies. What's the French word? Oeuvre? Is that? Oeuvre. Oeuvre. Yeah. Oeuvre. So, so, I mean, this is obviously one of his more notable films. I don't want to just range around, but, so here is Bergman's extended look at mortality, and it's kind of in a medieval context. But um, I guess another question is, I don't know. Is 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 this a major statement of Bergma? Does he does he does he move on in other works to just look at completely different things? I mean, who is Bergman? If I if I just saw this film, I'd always wonder, yeah, you know, who's who's the guy behind all of this? 
I haven't seen like a vast number of his movies, but I do think he's known for being a filmmaker. And from what I've seen, he's a filmmaker who really likes to interrogate like a lot of great filmmakers, what it means to be human and like, what is the individual's role for themselves and how they move through the world and what the, what their sort of, uh, places amongst other people, what they sort of owe to other people and to the community and to society and, and what is just uh, what it means to live your life. So to me, this is seems like a theme that he comes to a lot. And I think this sort of death uh, obsession in this one maybe is not always the case, but I think it could be. But I think it is tied to this sort of medieval world and the plague world, which is like obviously very death obsessed. Yeah, I know that he had been a director in the in the theater nearby for a while prior to this, and that's where he got a lot of his actors. So I think that there is some something he's pulling from that for, like the Mary and Joseph and this like merry band of traveling actors. But he made dozens of films, and I think that he is often asking questions about meaning or God or rejecting the religious upbringing that he came from, while at some point at least paying tribute to the symbols from which they arrived, or maybe some of the lessons. What are your thoughts, again, on acting? Because Bergman's not just commenting on death here, but he's commenting on actors, and he kind of makes it seem like this fun, silly thing. But you said you had thoughts on that. Throughout it, there's a lot of jokes about actors and how they're the least respected profession. So there's the whole scene where there's the whole plot line of the one skag or whoever stealing the smith's wife and running off for a tryst. And then the smith is hammer drunk and goes to bully Joseph because he's concerned or because he's jealous and then there's the you know the former priest who later we said dies of the plague in front of all of them he teams up and they make him dance like a bear so i think that there is this kind of dance monkey component to the life of an actor rather than being seen as an artist he is just exist for the pleasure of other people and at their whims and to be used and discarded as required I think, uh, yeah, I think that's really great. And he does that also with the painter as well, I think, in a way that he really ties art in the movie to uh, money and to capital. Like he, the, the, um, the, mm. the theater troupe is on its way to uh, Elsinore or to go to a festival to get money. And then they talk about what kind of uh, plays they're going to put on. They don't do the plays that they want to do. They do the plays that are going to make them money and that the people ask for them to do. So I think he it's a really demoralized sort of line of work being an artist in the movie. I think we're probably at a point where we can uh, start to wrap this, wrap this guy up. Patrick, I think you were of sound mind. And I think if we have a contract, Bill, we should get this guy on a contract to get him in here. With some frequency. Hey, open door policy. Whenever you see a film that you got to talk about, you got to let the world know. What are your feelings, Patrick, on the movie Jaws? Do you have any expertise? Oh, my God. Love Jaws. Really? That's one of my favorite movies growing up. Yeah. I wanted to suggest that sometime <laughs> soon, 
because we need a little more action to these <laughs> melancholy. The last two films we did have been good, but they've been all kind of party films. This is a death party film. We need mm-hmm. we need an adventure. We need to be out on a boat <laughs> with a big shark in the water. Not we're getting there. I think though it is funny. Like I think this movie is sort of melancholic at times, but it is a pretty lighthearted affair for so much of it. Is that long scene where the Smith and the actor are fighting, and the Squire's sort of like giving him like nasty lines to say? Uh, there's a lot of humor in this movie. Not all of it like works for me as a modern viewer, but uh, it's very funny how it feels like it's the reputation is very serious, and it's more often than not a sort of goofball film. I love that scene where he cuts down the tree and then the little squirrel jumps on the stump. It's so stupid. Apparently the squirrel was a accident and then Bergman was like, oh, we're keeping it. Yeah, it reminds me so much of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah. Just a squirrel pops up and is like perfectly framed, shivering yeah. away. That is true uh, of life, too, though. Like, even the last four months, people survive on humor as well. There's got to be something each day. There's maybe been too much humor in the last four months of just, like, funny videos. You're just sitting there, people sending you video after video. It's like, this is great, but, you know, this is my seventh today. Yeah, um, let's not forget the seriousness. Wow. Even just for work, the seriousness of still trying to make money, not mm-hmm. be a waste, we have to rate this film, right? I mean, Patrick, as you've been a good guest, I, we, Bill and I are kind of exclusive. We have this thing where we, we, we rate these things. Okay, guests don't rate. Okay. We use microphones to, to provide resonance in our voice. We don't let guests mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. So, already, the idea of ranking films. You don't like ranking. I don't like ranking. Uh We've so Patrick, for your knowledge, so far we've watched La Dolce Vita and the Rules of the Game. I mean, everything's going to make the podium by now. They all get medals, so yeah, it's not high all, stakes. They're all medals, and these are three great films. I would say. I would maybe say, you know, this is a film I recommended to my parents to be like, let's see what you think. And my dad fell asleep immediately, and my mom was confused the whole time. Uh, so. She liked it a little bit more than he did, but he was like, I didn't get it, but then also was asleep for the majority of the film. I would say La Dolce Vita on its face has just more wow factor to it. I agree. It's just a more entertaining film. No argument. Even though it's twice as long. (laughs) No argument. Uh, Now, is it better better than Rules of the Game? It's it's a little more accessible in that, but it's it's maybe a little more... Symbolic. I'm going to put it above Rules of the Game just slightly. I think, yeah, this is going to silver for me. I mean, Rules of the Game is very fun. uh, And also has some kind of brutal scenes, like the hunting and killing those rabbits and everything. Listen, Um, all three of our films... I feel like the themes here carry carry this into second place. I agree. But all three films, these are dining room table films. We haven't dabbled yet. We haven't had a lunch, a nice little lunch film. Nothing's been thrown in the trash. This... No disrespect. No disrespect. There will come a time when the films we watch deserve a little disrespect. I look forward to the day when we watch Wild Hogs or <laughs> I don't know what else. I'm not a big Raging Bull fan. You're talking Raging Bull. I, I've never I, seen Raging Bull. Well, 
in time. So Patrick, how would you would uh, we're going to let you we're going to let you place this on a on a table or the trash? <laughs> the trash. No, uh, <laughs> I think it's definitely a, it's it's a dining room table film for me, but it it kind of is on the verge of being a kitchen room table. I think that the themes and some of the images really sort of push it over the top. But for me, it's also kind of a very shaggy film, sort of really rough around the edges. And I like a good rough around the edges movie sometimes, but this one feels like some of the rough edges are not necessarily on purpose. (laughs) So, uh, So to me, it's not like one of the top, top of cinema that I've seen. But it's but the specific images and moments and the themes are very resonant. Any movie that's about like how to find happiness in this awful, awful life is is gonna get a big thumbs up for me. If we cite <laughs> you as a source, can we later on in future episodes use the word shaggy to describe movies like you did? Yes, absolutely. Or or will you be taking the shaggy clause and claiming it wasn't me? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Speaking of Shaggy, well, moving all around the house, so let's talk about the patio. This might be a patio film. It could double as (laughs) breakfast. You could have a nice meal out there. This is a patio Mm -hmm. film. Yeah. It could be nice. You could have nice people over and set a nice outdoor space. Excellent. So I said we wrap it up. Patrick, thank you for joining us. This was a pleasure. Thank you you to our listeners for enjoying uh, another excellent conversation with two experts, or three today. That's, That's the way. Just say this last thing too. I think movies are the greatest. This is this this is people may disagree. I think movies are the greatest uh, form of art. art. I think they're greatest medium for this reason. I mean, architecture has its place. You could do home architecture, public architecture. You could do all kinds of things. But like for me, I think much more important than the places where we dwell or gather is storytelling. And I think storytelling is as its most complete in cinema. Wow. It, it incorporates everything. You could bring the best of music, the best of dialogue, the best of poetry, the best of photography. It's the best thing ever.